Shalom, everybody. We are on our, I'm, I've lost track, fourth or fifth session of uh, reading through this book, He Walked the Americas. And last week, I said that I thought this would be the last session. I think it will be. Uh, time, you know, obviously, time will tell. Uh, we're going to be starting on page 160 tonight, reading through this and seeing how far we can get. Let's get right to it. So this is called The Waters of Vira Coca. I don't think we read this last week. Um, someone remind me if we have. But anyways, here we are on page 160. After the prophet had gone from Coca and walked away on the trail of the moonlight, the people began to retrace their footsteps. Wearily, they camped for the night on a mesa, and then during the early morning began their long return to their city with its vanished priesthood and its unfinished temple. Sad indeed was this walk of the people. They, walk, they, they walked saying to one another, why, oh, why did we not know him? Why did we le listen to the priesthood? Why did we let the army surround him? Now, quick context here, if you need caught up. When we ended last week, the, the priest, the local priests were finally fed up with them. I mean, they wanted to do human sacrifices, you know, live by the law of the jungle. And basically they decided to, to off him. You know, he's walking up and they decided they were going to destroy him, kill him. And um, he basically got up and left. Now, just so you guys know, this is how precisely how I think the Millennial Kingdom ended, according to what I read in the Oaths of Solomon and some other sources, that it got to a point of persecution where Yahushua's like, look, if you don't want me, I'm out of here. I'm gone. And, uh, you know, he wasn't he wasn't forceful uh, of his, uh, you know, it's like, if you don't want to obey the Father's commands, I do. So I'll just go somewhere where I can do it. To these questions, they had no answer, but they urged their crying children onward and dragged their tired feet homeward. Then came the great disappointment, the Upper Rimek, the Upper Rimek River, never known to lessen the flow of its clear water, was dry. The people of Coca were stricken. This was the displeasure of the great spirit. What would they do for water? Dismayed and distracted were the people, and seeing their parents' confusion, the children were doubly distracted. They held a meeting and spoke of many plans. The wisest argued to keep on walking towards Coca. If death waited for the people, why not near their own city? Yet as they came near the place of lightnings, they broke into lamentation. Spirits crushed. They huddled together. All the springs were dried and dusty. All the small streams were empty. Truly now they knew that they had offended, for each dry spring was an added witness to the wrath of the Almighty. That night the people chanted together, an olden chant, an olden chant from days long vanished. It was the fourth night of their long penance, and they had little hope of, for forgiveness or continuing life. Upon some of them had come the thirst madness, and four had died for want of water. Most desperately, the little children suffered. Now in their chant, they asked not for forgiveness, but only for help for their suffering children. Suddenly in the east rose the star of the dawning, and a luminous being stood among them. His hair and beard, touched by the moonlight, were rippling streams of burnished silver, and his white robe seemed to be made of moonbeams. Moon in one hand, he grasped a long staff. 
This he raised and thrust deep into the lava. A fountain of water sprang up, bubbling and tumbling its way among them. In a moment, they had fallen into it, soaking the water into their garments, crying and laughing as they felt it splash over them, carrying hither their shrunken babies. Cool water, it brought life to dying people. Then the people thought to thank him, but he was not there. He was gone, as much as if he had been but a dream of the imagination. Yet the water was there, splashing, singing, shining its way through the fields of lava. They called it the Fountain of Veracoca. Some say to this day that perhaps his returning was but a dream of the thirst madness. Yet most of the people only say that his great staff brought the water of life to a dying people. And in all Peru, no stream is more holy than the sacred fountain of Veracoca. You know, I've been wanting for a long time to uh, talk about the, 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 the rod of Mashiach or the staff, which, of course, you know, started with Adam, went down to uh, Enoch, to Noah, then to Yaakov, and then uh, Moshe uh, apprehended it from his father-in-law in the garden, and it went on from there. And you see some very similar, you know, um, incidents here with, with Mashiach using this staff or this rod as Moshe did. And, you know, the idea is that it's the same one. And I'm not even sure that this writer is th that educated in that way to even make that connection. I don't really know. Through the ages from that day, this spring has been worshipped. Here came the mighty Inca, ruler of a hundred monarch had a large dam constructed so that a blue lake would sparkle, filled with the sacred water. About this lake was a wall of great stones, eight feet high and six in width, and it wanted a giant structure. For some 300 feet ran this temple, its breadth 87 feet, its walls and tires of 20 feet each, rising 12 tires with many windows which had wooded sashes. Six courtyards stood before the temple, each surrounded by six buildings, two on each of three sides, leaving the fourth side open to the lake. These buildings were made of unhewn lava with well-fitted windows, all well-cemented, the second story of stucco and painted purple. Beyond these buildings were others, some of their circular stones, some of circular stones, and beyond these walls were still other buildings. Above the courtyard stood a giant statue of Veracoca seen and described by the Spaniard Garcilaso. The statue was of a man very lofty of feature with long curling hair and a flowing beard. He was dressed in a cassock, not unlike those of biblical times, and behind him walked a chained tiger. Gone today are the buildings with the slanting roofs and the statue of the prophet. Only ruins remain of the lovely temple. But if you should go to the river flowing between Cusco and Lake Titicaca, I recognize that name, Lake Titicaca. You may find the town of Cacha, which once was known as Coca, if I'm pronouncing that right, or Cocha, Coca. Beyond the town on the right side of the river near the volcano of Hirache is the sacred spring of Vera Coca, splashing its way in gurgling music through the lava to a large artificial lake. This is the most sacred spring in South America, the life-giving waters of Veracoca, where the prophet once stood and thrust his staff into the lava to save a repentant nation from death. Man, I just want to like write down the locations of all these places and go check them out.
In Mexico, The Coming of the Strangers were on page 164. Everyone had seen the strangers, from the markets to the parkways, from the fountains to the rooftops, everywhere the news had traveled. For days, the people had watched the temple for a glimpse of the bearded strangers. Led by a delegation of the lordly Itzays, they had come into the city and the people were amazed. These men were dressed much like the prophet, except that their robes were made in color. The Toltecs stared at the strangers. These men were, like the healer, bearded, yet on their heads they wore a mantle. Otherwise, they were like Kate Zoll, although their features were not as lofty. It was whispered that when they were led to the temple, the Great One looked with favor on them and embraced one like a long-lost brother. This one brought with him a message, a hide upon which marks had been written. It had been rolled about a stick and tied securely. The prophet took it and rolled it and read, something therein seemed to make him oh, make, uh, make him happy, or at least it gave him pleasure. For long these men spoke with the pale one in some strange foreign language, which not even the best translators among the Toltecs could fathom. The Itzes looked equally puzzled. For four days the strangers remained. Then when came the dawn of the day of parting, Kate Zoll said farewell on the steps of the temple. Yet it was such a happy parting that the people watching wondered. He did not leave, the Toltecs murmured to one another. He must be planning to remain with us, but not for long, whispered the doubters. See how joyful is the parting? This can only mean one thing, for fair Kalula. There will come a day of farewell. And then, as he left Tula, the plumed serpent will also leave us. After the strangers had left with the Itzes, much more was learned about them. As everyone knew, the Itzek cities were spread along the Sunrise Ocean. From those who had met these men in the markets or strolling along the parkways, the people heard more about the strangers. The bearded ones had come in a vessel, much like a bird which is flying, for it had white outstretched wings which had... Uh, which did propel it rapidly across the water, although there was also room for many rowers. Bound by rope against the long quay, the great vessel was waiting to accept once more its uh, wandering cargo. So it has been suggested, if I was telling the group beforehand, if these are the same people, that is, it has been suggested by some scholars that a Roman boat is being described here. So if you guys can imagine, it's not quite unlike the Viking boats, right? You, you would have all the, the rooms for the oarmen down in the uh, inside the ship in case there wasn't good winds and they needed to row through turbulent or still waters, but then it had the, um, the sails as well. Unhappily, the people watched the calendar. Well known was the fact that the feathered serpent never left a well-loved city except at the time of New Year's observance. Not distant was that celebration. That's the first I've heard that, that he only left with the uh, New Year's observance. The ultimate signs of his departure began to crowd upon them. He had chosen one of the priesthood from the favorite 12 who were always around him to be his successor. This was a saintly man whom the others respected. Then another was chosen to take his vacancy, for the prophet always left the saintly 12 about the new uh, Quetzalcoatl. Was 13 not his number? Next came the public cere ceremonials. 
it is said that the appointed had been given instructions and now he was to be ordained as leader and the crown of the plumed serpent placed on his forehead. Yet the most sacred of all ceremonies was when the prophet placed his hands on the kneeling man's shoulders and then the crown of office upon his shoulders. Now there was a new Quetzalcoatl. And of course, I think I'm pronouncing this right, Quetzalcoatl. Uh, we were looking into that last week afterwards. I don't think it's on the video recording. And, and um, you know, it, it, there's like Wikipedia articles and all. I mean, it's, this was a, a real dude. Uh, and I, I think the dates we were looking at, it was closer to Middle Age territory or maybe like the, was it the 7800s? I can't quite recall. It wasn't exactly first century. So just throw, throw that out there as a uh, possibility. For the people, it was an hour of sadness. As the days had approached the time of one reed, the great one had announced his departure. He was going to the Sunrise Ocean. There he would teach the many nations of the Mayan-speaking peoples. However, his days would be numbered. He had made an appointment in Tlapalan, where a great council awaited him bearing news of more distant people. A vessel would come one day to take him. It would uh, tie up at... Cosmo, a seaport filled with long docks for the larger vessels. This ship would carry him eastward toward the land where the sun is rising, known to men as Tlapalan. Long had men known of this great island, but it took two years to make the journey and return. The ships always returned with strange oils, spices, wild animal skins, and other treasures not known here in all the broad land. The people grieved to hear this. Will you ever return, O oh, much-loved master? Yea, in times more distant, I shall return to all the broad land, for greatly indeed do I love thee. Thus a promise had been given, and Kate Zoll never broke a promise. So the Toltecs sat through the ceremonies, sat at heart with eyes which were weeping. Only one thing more was there for the people. That was the prophet's farewell message. Still in Mexico, the prophecy at Colula. Page 167. When the prophet climbed his temple in the beautiful morning of one reed, the Toltecs were weeping, for now they knew that he was leaving, and perhaps never again through the ages would he walk the Toltec Empire. Once more he took them through the cycles of the dawn star, sometimes called the Star of the Prophet, to uh, Lao, Ayakalpan, Tik. I'm butchering this, to Kutli, and into the vistas of the future. He repeated the warning given at Tola against the deeds of the sacrificers and foretold the invasion of white man. He repeated again the description, the suits of shining metal, the rods which make much noise and kill at a distance. Then he bowed his head in silence. When again he began, it seemed to the people that his voice was husky with teardrops. Once I had great hope for these people, for I saw them kneel and kiss the sweet earth, and I saw the shadow of the great cross which they carried with them. Yea, I had great faith in these people. Now I must warn you against them. Carry your great books into the jungles. Place your histories deeply in caverns where none of these men can find them. Nor do you bring them back to the sunlit, uh, the sunlight until the war cycle is over. For children of war are these bearded strangers. They speak my precepts but their ears do not listen. They follow only the law of the jungle. 
They seek not but the golden medal as if that would buy them passage into the Isle of the Blessed. There's a reference to the hidden wilderness right there. They have but one love, and that is for weapons. Ever more horrible are these weapons until they reach for the one which is ultimate. Should they use that, there will be no forgiveness in that veil where there is no turning. Using such a weapon to make man over is searching into space for the Godhead. These things are not for man's decision, nor should man presume to think for all things and thus hurl mockery at the Almighty. Woe to those who do not listen. There are lamps beyond that which you are burning, roads beyond this which you are treading, worlds beyond the one you are seeing. Be humble before the might of the great hand which guides the stars within their places. There are many lodges in my Father's kingdom, for it is more vast than time and more eternal. Keep hidden your books, O my children, all during the cycle of warring strangers. The day will come when they will be precious." For five full cycles of the Dawn Star, the rule of the warring strangers will go on the greater and greater orgies of destruction. Hark well to all I have taught you. Return not to the sacrificers. Their path will lead to the last destruction. Know that the end will come in five full cycles. For five, the difference between the Earth's number and that of the gleaming Dawn Star is the number of these children of warfare. As a sign to you that the end is nearing, my father's temple will be uncovered. Remember this in the days which are coming. For a moment, the prophet stood quietly. When he began again, his voice was softer, and once more it held uh, unshed teardrops. Once there was a man who dreamed of a new world, and one without war and sickness. He wished to see the people happy, and so he fought sacrifice and slavery. To this dream he gave of his lifeblood. He knew that this was the desire of the great spirit, but suddenly there came upon him mocking visions. A horrible gift had come upon him. He could look down the cycles of the dawn star and see into the distant future. It would have been well if what he was seeing was the redemption of suffering mankind, but this was not what he was seeing. Tola was bereft with a savage earthquake. Then came the sacrificers. Blood dripped from the altars of idols, the same he saw in other cities. The visions were even worse in Kulula. The streets ran red with the blood of fighting. First, even upon her temple, he saw the blood of sacrificing. Then came even a more hideous carnage. There was fighting up the tires of the temple. The people drew in their breasts as one, be as one being, whispering in shocked tones to one another, what manner of men would commit such heresy? After a pause, the prophet continued, Soul sick from these hideous visions, the man sought the comfort of a mountain to be alone and near the Godhead. He must renew his will for teaching or pray for death that the visions be ended. For they told him that his work was mockery in this future, if indeed there was a future. There in the silence and cold of the mountain, a great sorrow was laid upon him. And the man sank down in the softness of the snowdrifts and prayed for either death or guidance. Then the heavens spoke in a crash of thunder, and the lightning flashed above the valley. The man turned to look again on Tola, his most beloved city. Behold, it was naught but a mass of rubble. He wept there with great sorrow. He clung to the rocks, staring back toward Tola. Then the heavens growled with reverberations, which shook the mountain like a rabbit. A flash of white light crashed beside him and cracked across the night's darkness. Behold, 
The old heaven and earth were swept away as if the cycle he had been seeing was smashed and he looked into another. The heavens parted and a rising gold sun shone down on another Tola. Plainly he could see the valley, but the city was one he knew not. Magnificent was the golden Tola. The man was lifted beyond the cold earth. No longer he saw the age of destruction. Gone was the horrible age of warfare. He was looking beyond the age of carnage. The prophet stopped and stared about him. He looked up on the eyes turned to him, up to him. He looked on the young and on the aged, on the masses who followed each word in silence. Then softly he continued, walk with me through this age of the future. Tola shines in all of its glory, but the metals are of types we know not. Loving hands have rebuilt the parkways, have paved the streets, have rebuilt the temples. There is a great building where books are kept for the scholars, and many are those who come to read them. Tola is a great center of culture. Come with me to the new Kalula. Shining again is my father's temple. Once more, the city is filled with fountains, and the parkways are wire-netted for the birds of rare plumage, and those who sing to enchant the listener. Cross through the parkway to my father's temple. You will see again the same inscriptions which today your eyes are seeing, but now all people can read them. Come to the metropolis of the future. Here are buildings unlike those we fashion, yet they have a breathless beauty. Here people dress in materials we know not, travel in manners beyond our knowledge. But more important than all this difference are the faces of the people. Gone is the shadow of fear and suffering, for man no longer sacrifices, and he has outgrown the wars of his childhood. Now he walks full stature toward his destiny into the golden age of learning. Carry this vision on through the ages, and remember Kate Zoll, the prophet. All right, moving on to the Yucatan. So, you know, obviously he's describing there an age. Uh, has this age already happened? Has it yet to happen uh, where, you know, uh, seems like, you know, it's a shalom on, on the earth here. Yucatan, Kate Zoll preaches to the Mayans. Page 173. Pausing for a drink of tea. From Yucatan to Guatemala, move the figure of the prophet. Through all the cities of the Mayans, along their wide tree-shaded highways, from gleam, gleaming temples went Kate Zoll's golden sandals. Escorted by the greatest nobles, thus touched by his reflected splendor, the prophet was welcomed throughout the broad land. Again, various names were given to the pale god. Guku uh, Mats, the plume serpent, or Kul Kul Khan, Lord of Wind and Water, or the later, Kol is Feather, and Khan is King Serpent. To the Itzes, he was Itzana, or Itzamna, the ancient hero of their migrations returned to them from over the Sunrise Ocean, from whence he had led them in ancient times from the Red Land of their beginnings. That's interesting. It is said that the prophet, when he walked among them, founded one of their loveliest cities. They say that his shrines are to be found in the ruins of Copan, Palinqui, uh, Kaba, and Uxmal, and through some were founded after his visit, and though some were founded after his visit, his shrine still carried his sacred mementos, his mantle, a pair of golden sandals, or rocks which had borne his weight for a moment, 
More precious than jewels are these to the Mayans. So all these shrines ran the boulevards from the four directions marking upon the land of Great Cross. And upon them, the people came with their pro uh, products, their seeds, their animals and children to say their prayers and ask his blessing. And in the Yucatan, they hand Kabul and the legend of Itza Mal. And... Um, well, I'll show you guys the picture when we read this. In Itzamal, this is in the Yucatan, the people called him Itzamatl, or the silver dew which falls down from heaven. Because when he was asked of them, his true name answered, I come as the dew which falls from heaven. Ever after they called him Itzamatl, or the, the dew which falls from heaven. After he left them, a shrine was built which became one of the most famous in the broad land. This is how it happened. On the morning when the healer came to Itzamal and gave his strange name to the people, he mounted an old man to lecture to them. During his warm, impassioned phrases in which he spoke of things most holy and walked with them into the future, he pressed his hands down on an ancient altar, which was a large block of granite. Many years after his departure, as the people came back to the ruin uh, grieving, a miracle had happened. Their plain there plainly so that everyone could see it pressed down into the slab of the granite was the imprint of the hands of the prophet the hand kabul or the hand which is skillful which everyone knew belonged to the healer because of its strange markings as if the great cross had been burned through it so there's a little illustration here of the prophet with his hand marking don't you just love story time? I get to show you guys pictures. When the priesthood had been called to witness, they immediately erected a temple about the sacred slab of granite. A giant causeway running to the four directions was erected so that the people could come along the arms of the great cross to witness the miracle of Itzamal and touch the rock which he had enchanted. There are other shrines of the hand Kabul, but they are never seen by white man. Only from the airplane one can see the lifted highways which still mark the Great Cross as the jungle had climbed up and across them. But the hand Kabul has been carried from temple to temple, always deeper into the jungles. This relic which was left them by the prophet and prized by the people beyond any jewels or gold work is always guarded and never, never left unattended. So the author there just went there and attributed the what are those those lines up there in like peru and other places where you know you fly over and you see like the the animals and stuff and such they're at least attributing one of them what's called the great cross to the worship of this prophet all right the sacred ring or no the 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 scarab ring one of the most illuminating stories of the prophet began with a scarab ring. The lights were low and the conversation was interspersed with the tinkle of glasses at this rather boresome banquet when the woman who sat beside me held up her wine glass for a refilling. So I take this as present day. That is when I saw the scarab ring. It was like and yet unlike that of the Egyptian for it was cut in jade. I had never known jade to be used by the Egyptians. She was quick to notice my interest and took it off for me to see it better. Her words anticipated my question. 
No, it is not Egyptian. The ring is Mayan, and it came from the rain well of the ancients. Then it was worn by a bride of the rain god before she was hurled to her death in the water. Ah, I see you know my people. Your people? You most certainly are a Caucasian. Indeed, I am. And so is my husband. But long ago, we, we tired of this world and retired to another in the Mayan jungle. Well, how did that happen? We were flying our plane over the jungles. We were so fascinated with the lifted line of the highways and the living peaks which mark the pyramids, for they are all they are also marked by the rise of the jungle. You know that there are hundreds of unknown ruins, so I've been told. But how did you we ran out of gas? That is the hard way to begin an adventure. We did not exactly seek the Mayans, we were thrust upon them. It was years before we got out of the jungles, older and wiser than when we entered. For we saw things never seen by white man, and indeed unguessed even by riders. Could you unbend to tell me a trifle? Only if our name is never mentioned. It has already been forgotten. We came upon living Mayan cities, unknown and undreamed of by modern peoples. Here they live in the ancient splendor, but disguised so that the airplanes will not see them. They wish no contact with your world, and if they knew we had told, then they would kill us. Do they still have books, and can they read them? She turned and consulted her husband. We cannot, we cannot answer that question. Very well. Tell me about the highways. The whole land is networked with them. Many of them are better than your best highways, if once they were to be freed from the jungle. They are built of cement much harder than you use, which had, bit, had been laid on a nine-foot flagging of sandstone. They are from 60 to 100 feet wide. Why are the Mayans afraid to meet us, and why do they stay in hiding? You have read, of course, of the conquest, but that was back in the 16th century. Have you heard? Have you ever heard of the prophet? or Hurricane, like Hurricane, or Zach Mutul, the mighty, which in Mayan means the saintly one who worshiped no idols. Do you mean the plumed serpent? I do indeed. Her husband leaned across her. Have you heard of the predictions? You mean he foretold the coming of white man? Then you know what they know, that white man's cycle is not yet over. He told them to wait and stay hidden. Yes, I know, but before that, he predicted the return of the sacrificers, an amazing foretelling of the rise of the Aztecs. Well, these people of ours are the white priesthood, she answered. They are the people who follow the prophet. They fled before the rise of the Aztecs. Fascinating. That's the writer saying fascinating, not me. Not as strange as the rites in their temples. We belong to them. They are the true Christians. We love them and we respect them. Again, she turned to her husband. You're not now going to stop talking. But that's with a question mark. You're not going to now stop talking? Turn not from the thirsty when you have water. I have followed this religion across two continents. Very well. We will tell you a little. The high priest, whose title is Apoke, is dressed like Quetzalcoatl from the white mantle to the golden sandals. Did you know it was from our people that he accepted the wide waist wrap? A long cloth, heavy with golden embroidery and encrusted with jewels, worn wrapped about the waistline. He accepted it as his badge of office and carried it with him across the ocean. Yes, I knew that in Yucatan he added it to his costume. 
I have seen the hand Kabul, and about that I shall not comment. I have a strange veneration for the prophet, and I do not wish to talk about him. But I will tell you this. On top of the pyramids burns a sacred fire, not the one worshipped by the sacrificers, but the very fire first lighted by the prophet. Tell me the religion of these pyramids. The Mayans are a friendly people, but they will not tell explorers or tourists about their pyramids. If you should ask them about the 13 steps to the fire, they will say that each is some god which they have forgotten. But behind their hands, the people are smiling. Only if, like us, you live among them and then join their worship will you learn what the pyramid stands for. The sacred fire, which was lighted almost 2,000 years ago, is tended by the Ah Pope or the reigning Quetzal and his 12 disciples. They have been chosen from the time of the prophet by the laying on of hands, one to the other, and each is chosen for his great soul stature. It takes real soul stature to reach the fire. The Ah Pope hears confessions if the people wish to give them and advises his flock in all their ways of living. He presides at weddings, baptismals, and burials. He blesses the animals in the springtime and the seed for planting. In the fall, he blesses the crops for the Thanksgiving ceremony. Those who do not get close to the people never learn the meaning of the pyramid. As I said, it is a religion of daily living, not words to be mouthed on Sunday and forgotten on Monday. Every step upward is an honor to be earned. Yet it is also possible to step down and is much more easily done than to go up. The lowest step is the fundamental step of the entire religion and taught by the prophet. Number one, commit no petty act. As you would be treated, so treat your fellows. You cannot follow this religion and the law of the jungle. If in your life you follow the law of the jungle, then walk away. The other steps are as follows. Number two, seek the spirit of truth. Never accept half-truths. Upon this foundation, build your life and thought, your work and worship. Number three, or the third step, of the work of your existence, do your own share. No man or woman can hope to enter blessedness born upon the backs of servants. Those are the fundamentals. The next seven steps of the pyramid are the Ten Commandments in identical order, except that they are condensed. The last three steps are not only secret, but they demand a soul so saintly that none but the finest may ever surmount them. As the plumed serpent said, many hear the call, but few are chosen. One of the greatest tasks of the plumed serpent is to conduct the chants. The work of this he may divide up among his priesthood. One of those chants was spoken by the people when the healer was leaving the country. It is hauntingly like one I learned at my mother's knee in childhood. On Thanksgiving, we chant this before the pyramid. We bring to thee, O Father, divine spirit who has no image, this fruit of our yearly labor. As of old, thine own son taught us. Blessed, bless these seeds, O most holy, that we may make the earth more fruitful. Bless this corn, O most powerful, and help us live up to thy instructions. Her husband leaned toward me again. My wife may be talking too much. She gets carried away. Let me say this. The pyramid symbolizes the spiritual life of the soul. This religion leaves no loopholes for double dealing or cheating to hide. Be forgiven and continue a dozen times. In, uh, insincerity breaks the fundamental first law. 
This is a living religion, and one is daily reminded of the holy man who came here with his wealth of geographical knowledge and his ability to speak perhaps a thousand languages. Yet his warm humanity, his great love and fineness of soul are reflected in these his people, so that he lives for you even in the 20th century. It is something like a miracle. Yes, our little heaven is a sort of lost Shangri-La, and we shall never disclose its location. There was a kind of finality in his voice, so I addressed my next question to her. Just one more question. Could you tell me something of his departure? She hesitated a moment and then, with a few brief sentences, painted the picture of that sad day of parting. While I marveled that such a vivid scene could come down through the centuries with all the freshness of a yesterday. He nudged her arm and she stopped smiling at me apologetically. However, I noticed that she pulled out a sheet of scratch paper, which later turned out to be a bill, and scribbled something on the back. This she pressed into my hand as we left, and to hand and to keep him from knowing if it was important, I said laughingly, just think what I might have missed if it had not been for a scarab ring. All right, Yucatan, and I can't even read that word. It's all impressive. And Amerind of the Mayans views a scientific problem. All right, the Mayans view a scientific problem. The fascinating work done in Yucatan near Merida and published in the January 1959 National Geographic magazine came to the attention of the author. As in most students of the cultures of the Americas, this expedition with its excavations spread much light in dark places. According to the Mayan dates, which were able to decipher because of their inter-revolving astronomical calendars, the Mayans built most of their Yucatan cities during the 6th and 7th century AD. Yet their legends are much older. Was it possible that the Mayans came north from Guatemala and this was the locale of the earlier legends? This is the contradiction which faced scholars up to the excavations undertaken jointly by the National Geographic Society and Tulane University, which means where there is writing on the rocks. Here the scientists had found a surprise. Dr. E. Wyless Andrews, the expedition leader, found an entire sequence in pottery design which for the first time gave science a sort of timetable. Pottery, artifacts, and architecture here indicate that this city was founded between 2000 and 1000 BC, if not earlier. It continued to function throughout Mayan history as a great metropolis right up to the time of the Spanish conquistadors. The culture developed on the spot and uh, flowered through the classic period when the city was perhaps the largest in the Americas. Instead of being abandoned with the decline of the classic period, as is the usual case, the city continued throughout all, throughout all the turning points of Mayan history. The descriptions of the site are most intriguing. The city was the largest that's discovered by any excavators. It is estimated that it was about one-third as large as modern Mexico City. According to the statistics given me in that metropolis during 1955, the ancient city of the Mayans then should have a population of about two million souls. The great cer ceremonial highway through the city running from the palace to temple is 60 feet wide and some 20 miles in length. Of course, it will be many years before the Her Herculean task of excavation has been completed and more information is available to science. One fact greatly puzzled the excavators. 
They found a temple probably dating from the classic period to the time of the Spanish conquest. It had been credited to about 500 AD by carbon dating and was finally destroyed by what were probably the weapons of the Spanish. During this last gasp of the temple as a Mayan institution, the Indians themselves turned archaeologists. They tunneled down through their floor to another older temple, perhaps entering a secret passage left open to the ancient shrine. Here they cleaned away the rubble and rededicated it. Now they fashioned a plaster tube leading into the rubble below. At the bottom of the shaft, they placed seven small clay figures. No scientist had never seen anything like them. Each exhibited some deformity. Two were hunchbacks, one a dwarf, and another had a swollen stomach. The excavators could only guess at the significance. There were educated guesses that this was some sort of healing rite. The Mayans then erected an altar just two steps away from the opening of the tube. Embedded in the center was a T-shaped symbol with a striking medallion in the middle. Nearby stood tall, brilliantly colored incense burners, sculptured in clay in the stylized image of the brutal uh, St. Juanary gods of what the prophet called the sacrificers, but the scientists called the, quote, the Aztec influence of Mayan decadence, unquote. The medallion itself covered with calendric and divinatory hieroglyphs is apparently the key object. Fascinated with this interesting problem of the present, the author sought out a family of Mayan friends. They listened with interest, touched with what seemed to be a shade of amusement. When I finished, they began speaking to one another in Mayan, which closed me out of the conversation, for I understood very little of the ancient American language. However, I did catch the name Kol Kol Kan repeatedly several times. Finally, unable to stand the suspense any longer, I broke in. Are you by any chance speaking of Lord of Wind and Water? Yes, we are. I understand that you are interested in the fair God, and therefore you should know that he was kindly disposed to all mis, uh, misformed people, such as dwarfs and hunchbacks. He always healed them. Furthermore, he also took a kindly interest in pregnant women, whom he never failed to stop and bless. I realized that, and also the significance of the T symbol and the calendar medallion. But this took place during the reign of the sacrificers, apparently shortly before the Spanish destroyed the temple. Very well, let me tell a story and you will understand. He glanced at his mind, friends, and family and cleared his throat. Before he starts the story, I'm taking another drink. Four, uh, four centuries, not four, the number four, but four centuries, the people had watched the calendar pass around from circle to circle. From each inner circle to the next outer circle it went. As predicted, the sacrificers came back, even as he had caused it to be inscribed. Always it drew nearer to the time of warning. As that date approached, the emperor Moctezuma decreed that it be taken down and buried. He changed the calendar. Thus he reasoned that he had erased the fateful prediction of long retribution against the sacrificers. In whispers, the people still remembered. The bloody sacrificing was continuing in all the temples, even in his temple in Kalula. Then came the year when he had told them to expect the bearded pale ones clothed in metal garments, carrying rods which made a loud noise and killed at a distance. The people were frightened. They had not forgotten. Finally, a day came during the year of retribution when the bearded ones were sighted. 
And of all days, it came on the feast day sacred to the prophet. Flashing across the broad land with obsidian mirrors came the fateful message. The bearded pale ones are landing. They are dressed in metal and carry rods which kill at a distance. Here in this Mayan city, the sacrificing priesthood decided to try to reverse destiny. They remembered a long neglected religion and an almost forgotten altar. They tunneled down to his altar in mad haste. It had been covered in burial long centuries before. They made figurines which might catch his attention. They burned candles of his incense in the only candle holders or incense holders they had. They prayed night and day, but we know that their efforts were for naught. The Spanish marched in and took the city now deserted by the panic-stricken people. Who would defend it? No one but a fool. This is the true story of the Mayan temple. All right, so in Yucatan, Cosmo Island. There is a shrine in Yucatan more sacred than any other, more beloved than that of Hunabku, the god who has no image, more dear to the hearts of the people than the magnificent ruins of their cities, such as the Temple of the Thousand Columns. That shrine is an island whose very soil is sacred. For it was from here that the prophet left in the serpent vessel for the land of uh, Tlapalan. Cosmo is a jungle island, once a part of the land behind it and a part of the eastern seacoast, which is in the process of slowly sinking. In the time clock of geology, such a sub subsidence is not an overnight event. To suggest that it happened less than 17 or 1800 years ago would invite scientific skepticism. For Cosmo is now 12 miles from the shoreline. Yet there is a great highway with the lifted line of trees streaking across the jungle to Cosmo, a road which with its huge nine-foot sandstone flagging and hard cement cover drips down under the waves of the coastline and again reappears on the dry land of the ancient seaport. The docks of the busy merchant vessels have long since rotted away, and the ships which tied up here have vanished, but in legends, Cosmo comes to life. Especially vivid are the tales of the coming of the beautiful serpent vessel and how the grieving people waited day and night near it in order to have a place of vantage when the million, when the milling thousands would come pouring down the highway and a human tide to watch the prophet board his ship on that day which was different and never to be forgotten. In the Yucatan, the serpent's vessel. From out of the sunrise, one warm spring morning, toward the Aitse country in the island named Cosmo, the people gathered to watch a strangely beautiful ocean vessel approaching. Of deepest redwood, it was fashioned, very shining and highly polished. Its sides were carved, intertwining serpents of black and red. That's interesting. So <laughs> there's your... Uh, there's your DNA uh, double helix right there. Along the lower deck were many oarsmen, and the rhythmical lifting of their paddles made the ship strangely resemble a centipede-legged monster crawling rapidly over the water toward them. This was not new to the people. Often trading vessels had many oarsmen. Now the people whispered together, this is the ship which has come for the prophet. He said that a ship would come to Cosmo to take him far away to Tlapalan, the beautiful island across the ocean where wonderful news is waiting for him. 
Yea, this must indeed be the vessel. It is not from any well-known nation. They bring no goods, only the strangers. Then I, for one, shall remain by the vessel, so that when the dawn of the departure comes, I shall be able to see him leaving. And the man sat down upon his blanket. All day people came to see the vessel. And as the days passed by, more people remained there, eating and sleeping beside the strange ship like a swarm of little lost children waiting. Yucatan, the departure. Four days passed, and the crowds were who were waiting watched the sunlight reflected on the vessel from the gently heaving water, coating with gold the shining serpents, or the moon coal shining, painting the vessel with brushes of silver. Still they had not seen the healer. Then came a morning that was different. From far away across a strange new sign, borne on the wind from afar off, like the torrent of a distant river, the people who had been waiting looked into each other's eyes and nodded. This is the day of his departure. Closer came the lamentations, like the surge of a flood onrushing, and a wave of people engulfed the highway. The cries came from the throats of untold thousands, jostling each other for a place of vantage. Yet the greatest noise was still in the distance. Louder and stronger it kept approaching, greater than any sounds of the jungle more mighty than the wildest windstorm, deep-throated like advancing rapids. Onward came the human torrent, and above it the plaintive sighing like the churning of a river as it fell downward over a steep cliff into the splash of a million raindrops. Now the priesthood was making a pathway, trying to hold back the people. Through this path came the conch-shell marchers, followed by the deep-sounding tom-toms, then the tall and powerful oarsmen, who walked up to the vessel and drew up stiffly there beside it. Next came the great men of all nations, led by the monarch of the Toltecs, resplendent in his magnificent costume, and his vast assemblage of courtiers came the, Chichim uh, the Chichimics, the Aitzes, the Azpotecs, and many others. Some were distant, unheard of nations in strange and colorful costumes, garbed in every shade of the rainbow, some flashing with embroidery and jewels, some clothed partly with leather and trimmed in other fashions. All the faces showed deep sorrow, and their crowns of magnificent plumage were bowed. This morning the people had no eyes for splendor. Now came the bearded strangers with their strangely fashioned mantles, and only they smiled as they passed, bowing. Behind them were more of the white-robed priesthood, wafting incense and chanting softly. Some among them were openly weeping. Far back on the highway now came the crying, and one could tell by the lamentations just where the prophet was passing. To the men near the vessel, that sound grew steadily stronger, until, held high above the people so that all could see him without pushing, came the litter carrying the feathered serpent, clothed in a white robe of spotless seed silk. With the wide golden scarf of the Mayan high priest wrapped about, above, about him above the waistline, his face was sad as he looked down on the people. In an unending series of blessings, the silent figure of the pale god passed. By the time his platform had reached the vessel, the strangers had climbed to their places, and the rowers had seated themselves at their benches. Now the prophet stepped from, uh, stepped from his platform and mounted to the ship's high deck, where the golden seat of honor awaited him. Then he turned and faced the people. Now at last everyone could see him, and the crush of pushing was ended. 
Never before or since in all the broad land was ever heard such a terrible silence. Never since has it been known in the jungle. Hungrily the people sought his features, at once so peaceful and so lofty, sought the beauty of his white halo, shining in the morning sunlight like a mist of gold about him. Sadly, they fastened their eyes upon him, knowing this was goodbye forever. Trying to remember each tiny detail so they could tell their children's children to be passed onward through the ages. Others held aloft their baby, saying, look once more upon him. Glory is he of all the nations. Look upon him and remember. One man was heard to cry out as if the words were torn from him. Mightiest prophet of all the ages. His face so noble is like a mighty echoing fire flame, which for us must be extinguished. Now he held up his hand for silence, the sacred hand Kabul, and he turned and looked upon all the faces, on babes held aloft to see him, upon the old and on the youthful, those eyes so gray-green like the deep sea, rested fleetingly and passed on as the flowing of water. But each rest was a benediction, and each one felt that instant of blessing. Someone began chanting an olden chant which he had taught them, but since has become known as the chant of Cosmo. Almighty Father who created all mankind and bound us here in this realm of service, open to us thy hand of mercy that we may have shelter and food for our bodies. O you who dwell in the golden sunshine and the liquid silver which falls from the rain clouds and the depths of the sea and the power of the windstorm, our Father who art in heaven, must, most holy is thy word. Guide us, O Father, through life's trail of hardships. Deliver us from all that is evil. From thine is the power from the ice to the lava, and thine is the glory forever and ever. The prophet held up his hand again in final benediction, then turning in majestic silence, seated himself, his white robes falling about his sandals and whirling away in a torrent of black crosses. At this signal, the ropes which held the vessel were loosened and the ship began to turn out to sea. Then the prophet again stood and faced back toward the people, holding up his hand in benediction and farewell. The cries of the people broke forth like terrible thunder as the prophet once more seated himself and the ship rapidly moved toward the skyline. The crying must have echoed woefully after him as the ship shrank in proportions for it continued long after the ship had gone. Yet as long as the vessel could be seen, every eye followed it and the dots of light on the golden seat of honor until at last it vanished along with the ship that held it and wavered into the teardrops which blended that distant stretching horizon. All right, we're in the epilogue and I'm going to read for the next uh, 15 pages, I think, and then we'll kind of get through all of it. So, of course, that was the end of the story right there. But let's see what the epilogue has to offer. No one ever again saw the serpent vessel. You know what the um, – it talked about the, 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 the intertwined serpents, right, the double helix on there. And if you guys remember – uh, it's something that I've thought long and hard about when we were living in France. There was a chateau I purposely wanted to drive out of my way to go visit. And it was the most beautiful, you know, chateau. And it it um, it um had the four corners, which represented the four corners of the earth. Of course, it was flat, you know. 
And right in the center was a spiraling double helix going all the way up and um, all the way up to heaven. It was fascinating um, a staircase, which, of course, you know, goes way before the, the was it Francis uh, Crick was uh, discovered the DNA uh, double helix in, it was the 1950s, 1952 or 1953 or whatever. So no one ever saw, again, saw the serpent vessel. No one ever returned to tell the people whether he reached Tla Palan. And though through the dawn stars returning cycles, that double star of morn and evening, sometimes called the star of our master, uh, long name here, Talao is called Pan Tikutli, much has happened on the dates he predicted, yet never again in all the broad land among the many waiting nations has been heard the tread of those golden sandals, nor seen the beloved face of Kate Zal, the prophet. Fitness. So ends the tale of times long vanished, of cities which now live now but in story, of Puants, Itzes, and wealthy Toltecs, as well as other exotic empires not listed among the living nations. You know what? The only thing that disappoints me in this is that she she did talk about the Mayan calendar, but went very, very little detail into that. That really should have all of her fascination now about uh, 2012, you know, the end of the, the calendar or whatever it means, you know, the, the dawn of a new age or whatever. Uh, and if this calendar actually originated uh, from the, the prophet. So is the drama of Mats Azoma, sometimes called Kate Zal the prophet, mighty plumed water serpent, whose words are repeated at cancel fires whenever the ancient ones are gathered. The backdrop is not the land as we know it, for the climates are much changed. The mines are under a forest blanket. The valley of the gardens is now a desert. The highways are covered by a strangling jungle, while the city described by a hundred nations is now but a long lost legend. Yet strung together, they form a pattern which becomes a string of pearls, long scattered. The chancers may live far away from each other, but the mystic figure never changes. The phrases falling from the lips of wild non-Christians like the Seri are hauntingly familiar. The marked palms are miraculous and healing, while the sea eyes are dark with untold sorrows as they look through the cycles of the future. So ends the legend of the pale god, yet that end is shrouded with questions. Who were the strangers of the serpent vessel? That's what I've been asking since day one. Where is the land of Tla Palan? What was the news which he was seeking? Now, keep in mind, the land of Tla Palan, uh, it, it says it's a two-year journey, two years. So is this actually the Isle of the Blessed? Maybe she'll talk more about this, but that's that's what I was thinking this whole time. Uh, I haven't read this far yet, so I was wondering if this is the Isle of the Blessed, the hidden wilderness. What was the news which she was seeking? And most intriguing of all, who was this lonely wandering figure? No man can answer that reoccurring question and and place a period after his answer, for it will return again like a specter. Such is the legend of the prophet. All right, so on page 196, I'll just show this. Um, well, I'll read this first, and then I'll show you the, the, the little map they have. The prophet moved from South America up the Mississippi and by rivers throughout the eastern states. 
from Michigan, he went to Canada and from there to the Pacific Coast, moving from there to the Pacific Tribes by way of Grand Canyon and uh, Havasupi. He went to the Pueblos and then down to the Chiquihua Valley to Tula and uh, later to Kolula. He barely sailed with the merchants to South America. Returning, he left for the Mayan Empire and finally just departed from Cosmo Island by ship for an island lying toward the sunrise over the ocean. So, uh, okay, well, this is, uh, I'm going to have to make out the, uh, the AE map here. So if you guys can see this, Number 21 here, right here, here he is departing from uh, central Mexico, Yucatan, just south of Florida. He goes right through Cuba over there. All right, he goes right through Cuba, and he's going out towards an island in what's called the Rising Sun. Okay, so if you actually look at this on the moon map, that's that's how you would go to get to the hidden wilderness. So. Just throw that out there, because as you guys know, the uh, if you were to take a flight from, say, New York to Paris or pick any European city, even if you were to go to South America, and I'm sorry, if you go to Africa, you first have to go around to like London or some Mediterranean city, then cut down to Kenya or wherever. You're going to go up. You're, gonna, you're not going to go straight across. You're going to go up and over, right? Because the land jets out this way on a flat earth map it's not like on the globe so if you were to go straight out from cuba and just keep going east uh you're going to be going to the antarctic regions that uh is what i believe is you know the hidden wilderness so that's i wasn't expecting that but there's more of what i've been looking into right there all right and then uh they you can look at this here but they have like uh ancient sites visited by the prophet and this is all in um in Mexico, all numbered. And um, all right, skipping over to page 202. The identity of the prophet discussed. This should be interesting. The identity of the plume serpent or the Lord of wind and water was an argument which raged with considerable heat at the time of the conquest. The Catholic Church, confronted with the facts which seem to point to an early Christian, suggested that he may have been St. Thomas. In fact, in Mexico, he was often called St. Quetzalcoatl. Uh, now, why would the Catholic Church say this is Thomas? A number of reasons. Uh, I was just discussing with the group earlier. I just finished editing the Acts of Thomas or the Acts of Teon. And... This the just so we know the Acts of Thomas is not one that I hold to be scripture. I have some huge theological problems with this book, uh, but nevertheless, one really interesting tidbit in the Gospel. Of, I'm sorry, not the Gospel of Thomas. The Acts of Thomas is that Thomas himself identifies. You know, he's Thomas the ten, the twin, Teom the twin, or his full name would be Yehuda Teom uh, the twin is that he was actually Yahushua HaMashiach's twin. So take that for what it is. Like how he basically he looked identical to um, Yahushua HaMashiach according to the Acts of Teon. There's actually a humorous scene where uh, these people get freed from prison by Mashiach 
and they think t Thomas is doing it. And Thomas is like, I, I didn't free you from prison. That must have been Mashiach who did that. Uh, and so the, they never address the theological implications of what does that mean if he was his physical identical twin in a virgin birth? How does that work? I, I'm fascinated in that concept in pre-existence to begin with, uh, because you know, uh, a, a they will tell us. Now, I have never taken an entire strand of DNA under a microscope and inspected all billion miles or whatever how much they say if you un unravel but they say that at birth a the only two identical uh, identical things really in this universe are identical twins dna that's what they say so how does that play out with the identity of the soul the ruach and you know pre-existence questions i don't uh, have answers for this time anyways that's one of the things but the second thing about thomas is that he was the first of the Talmudim to go to the Far East, to India. And so what they're basically saying is, well, maybe he went beyond India and he went all the way to, uh, you know, Polynesian islands and, you know, to uh, Americas and so on and so forth. That's where they're kind of getting that idea from. Um, all right. Uh, La Casas uh, and Kingsborough were not inclined to accept this conclusion. Uh, these are other scholars who are saying, no, 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 it's not Thomas. They pointed out that such words as sin, trinity, virgin birth, I don't remember reading about the trinity in here, but I don't know where they're getting that from, but whatever. Trinity, virgin birth, winged beings or angels, the use of the Ten Commandments and the ceremonial baptism and marriage vows, uh, whose similarity extends across both American continents, suggest an origin for which Lord Kingsborough was inclined to look higher than St. Thomas, while the monk remained discreetly silent. It is the opinion of the present writer, that would be this writer right here, uh, that Kate Zoll must have been an Essene. Now, there, there's some of you have put forward interesting theories in here about, um, uh, well, the Essenes, maybe even the Qumran community. Uh, according to the, the Book of the Nazarene, it appears that Yochanan the Baptist was raised in the Essene community in Qumran. Uh, that's really fascinating. Uh, and some of you put forward theories that that community were actually temple priests who they left the temple because it had been hijacked by you know, the sons of Satan and the, the, the Pharisees uh, running the show, all that kind of stuff, the Sanhedrin kind of uh, bending to the weight of the Pharisees who had political power. And they basically went out to Qumran to start their own, you know, ceremonial rites, baptism, so on and so forth. They had their own library, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, interesting, right? So interesting idea that he, uh, this, this prophet was an Essene. Since the opening of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have come to know a great deal about this religious order on which Yahushua was supposed, supposed to have been a member. Now, I myself have not seen any evidence that he was a member. As I just told you, according to the Book of the Nazarenes, which is in the Colbrin Bible, uh, Yochanan the Baptist was. He, he was raised with the, the people in the white sheets, you know, in the caves there in the desert, right at the Dead Sea, spot on all of his practices his baptismal practices is what they did but i'm of the opinion that yahushua hamashiach after yosef died at the age of 12 that he actually went to great britain uh that his great uncle yosef of arimathea came and got him uh raised him 
And because all of his brothers, uh, you know, Yaakov, everybody else, uh, they were through Yosef, they were his half brothers. And of course, there's varying sources on whether or not Mary had children or not. You know, just leave that on the, the table right now. I, I really don't know. I couldn't say. But uh, what was I getting at? Okay, so, you know, this book hinted at that, right? That Yahusha, uh, that there was trade routes from Great Britain all the way to South America and North America. And he would have been acquainted with that already by that time. Anyways. So all of that to say, because in the book of the Nazarim, uh, Yahushua shows up around the age of 30, and his brothers hadn't seen him in years. They're like, hey, where have you been? Hey, welcome back. And he's like, okay, let's let's do this. Let's do this. You know, uh, Let's go go see Yochanan the Baptist, and from there he's baptized. So that doesn't speak to me that he was in, in Qumran. All right. Um, all right. So it is the opinion of this present writer that he was in Essene, and um, – Okay, so some things she knows about the Essenes. We know now that they favored a white toga-like garment. I think that still stands. Uh, I think that's true. Wore no covering on their heads and always spoke of Elohim as my father. That's, of course, really interesting. Strangely enough, the Amerind or American Indian seems to recognize this word. I have been corrected several times in its pronunciation. I can imagine they would correct me left and right in my pronunciations. Finally, a uh, Kokta informed me that this was the name of the wind god. Although the name may differ from tribe to tribe, he said it could be recognized by the long E sound repeated twice with a hissing in between. Therefore, this word would be Essene or Essene or Essene. There's two E's at the end. A few days later, I brought him a temple painting of Osiris from ancient Egypt and asked him if he could recognize the deity in question. Without any hesitation, he named Osiris as the wind god. Uh-oh. Put a stamp of red flag on that one. And then as an added surprise, he pointed to Set and said, that is the death god. Hmm. Uh, remember, it, the if you, want, if you want to understand the... Uh, the mysteries of Isis in a nutshell, just what I've, I've told you guys before, the Back to the Future trilogy is all just a repeat telling of the mysteries of Isis. But if, if you want to understand it in a nutshell, go see The Lion King. Uh, and yeah, it, The Lion King is with Scar being set and Mufasa being uh, Osiris. And I think what was the name of his mother naomi or i can't remember the name of the she line but that would be isis and uh, and so on and so forth um and you know when when set the death god kills uh, when scar kills mufasa you know uh, the whole world goes into darkness right they've lost the rule of mats and they're whatever all right these people are not dealing accurately with you the ceremonial name should be Esseries. Yet in Mexico, the prophet was known as Quetzal, Quetzal or Quetzal. That is the name of a bird which stood for the wind or air. Our name for him was Esicotl. The TL sound is a title of great veneration. Thus does one learn the most amazing facts from the Amarind. But the suggestion of ancient knowledge is even greater. That Kate Zoll made his amazing travels during the first century would be far harder to disclaim today than it was during the life of Alex um, Herdlicka. 
the anthropologist who devoted his life to proving that the Amerind is a recent invader from the Orient. He so influenced the present writer when a student at the University of California, Southern Branch, that it was some time before I could take this legend seriously. Alas, for uh, leave it to the university. What she's saying is, is she was indoctrinated in the university and therefore uh, she believed what she was taught. And so when she went out and learned about these legends from the people that isn't written in the Illuminati history book, she couldn't take it seriously. It took years and years and years for this evidence to accumulate and accumulate, you know, and where there's smoke, there's fire. And she's like, I think there's something to this. Thank you, you know, college education. Um, okay. Alas for uh, Herdlicka, that's really a weird name. It's H-R-D. There's no vowels between those consonants. It's H-R-D. There's no vowels. I don't know what to put in there. And his idea is the discovery of flints of amaranth manufacture in the fossilized bones of bison undoubtedly uh, placed, uh, placed uh, whatever, ice age time was followed by the newest tool of science, carbon dating. Then all the civilizations which uh, Herdlicka had pronounced very recent began to recede backward in time. Immediately the legend, which had been pa passed over, again sprang to life. Well, I don't know who to believe there because I'm not really, <laughs> not really too big on carbon dating. Um, I could no longer regard the figure of Kate uh, Zoll as simple dawn god who was opposed to the god of darkness. That Aztec divinity. Uh, uh, Tezcat Lee Poca. Especially was this true after I had met Sedilio. That sage was not unacquainted with the ideas of the college professor, whom he regarded with amused indifference. Although grateful for the uh, recitation of Sedilio's ancient chants, which, lacking sons and headed for battle, he might have taken to the grave, yet I was frankly skeptical of the antiquity of the Chihu. Chihuahua Valley. Not until I had questioned pilots about the ancient drainage systems and had flown over it myself did I suddenly realize the authenticity of this legend, or this legacy, excuse me. Uh, that Tezcatlipoca was the final great leader of the sacrificers as they marched to power now seems to me very probable. Perhaps he followed the prophet in time. But he must have had a very powerful personality to overcome the veneration of the people for the pale god. By rereading old college notes taken so carelessly at the time which now have taken on new meanings. Isn't that the truth? Regarding old books now lost but which are quoted by other old books, seeking out the stories told to the explorers by the tribes who then spoke freely because they were not silenced by later cynical amusement caused by ignorance, that would be the university, uh, the, the halls of learning, and especially by visiting the wild tribes who, as Delugic, chief medicine man of the Mescalero Ap Apaches, once said to me, are, quote, willing to sit down and reason with you if you can contribute to the council, unquote. Has this book grown? But the identity of the prophet who apparently did live in the first century still remains an elusive mystery. Dr. Buck, late curator of the Bishop Museum of Hawaii was not surprised that Waco or Wakia was to be traced around the Americas. Numerous plants found in both areas had convinced them of ancient commerce, 
while his people who had traveled to all Pacific points by star navigation regarded no distance across the Pacific as impossible. Therefore, I am again thrown back upon Dr. Buck's description of the fair god as a man who arrived in the company of men who apparently wore clothing Mediterranean in type and three Roman ships, or again, and ships of a Mediterranean type whose origin was probably the Red Sea. However, Dr. Buck noted that China had similar legends and also India, which he had collected from natives of those lands then living in Hawaii. I wish we had that information. If it's out there, somebody let me know. I'd love to read about what they have to say about this white prophet in Indian China. There is a Waco Yama mountain in Japan. I found this part fascinating. I was reading ahead tonight. The last word being Japanese for mountain. Therefore, he concluded that the ships which brought and left the fair god had already toured the Orient, undoubtedly in his company. Beyond the fact that he regarded Waco or Wakia as a real person who lived during the century of uh, Yahusha, he was unwilling even to hazard a guess as to the identity of the prophet. Perhaps we should leave the question with the Mexican archaeologist who, when tossed this puzzle, uh, puzzle of antiquity, simply shrugged their shoulders and answered, According to the Dead Sea Scrolls, there was a very saintly man preceding Yahusha by about a century. This holy man in Essene had no name except the master or the great teacher. He was crucified but was apparently saved by the Essenes who were in the crowds surrounding him. Scientists in England have suggested the Polynesian chants allow for an era of time, perhaps a century, plus or minus. Uh, Quinn Sabi, who knows? So if I'm if I'm getting that right, they're saying that a century before uh, Yahushua HaMashiach in the Essene community, there was a great prophet who was to be crucified, who was saved by his disciples, and they're saying perhaps this is the guy. Because nobody wants to apparently, you know, no scholar wants to say, well, that's that's Jesus Christ right there, you know, Yahushua HaMashiach. Nobody wants to do that. The hand symbol. All right, this will be the last uh, section. So I'm not going to read through the notes. So we got two more pages and then we're done. The North American Indians used the figure of the human hand in their system of picture writing to denote supplication to the great spirit, a symbol of strength, mastery, and power. In all their great number of ceremonial practices and observances, there is not a single one in which the symbol of the hand does not appear. The priests are drawn with hand outstretched or uplifted. At times it was one hand and arm, sometimes the other, but the most common was both. Among the northern tribes, it is not a rare thing to see these hands drawn or depicted on bark, skins, or even pieces of wood, intended by those who profess the arts of magic and prophecy to aid and keep in memory the sacred songs and dances. Those on wood are more, uh, more often found in the region of Lake Superior and the upper Mississippi and are called music boards. One of these boards was obtained from a great meta or priest many years ago and was brought to a city and passed through a rolling press. It was found to be covered with small figures on both sides of the board. There were 40 principal figures on one side and six of them of the uplifted hand, four of which were attached to an arm, the other of the hand alone. The reverse side carried 38 characters, nine of which were the hand, and one of these was connected with a torso. The import, as the meta said, was of musical symbolism. 
The drawing of the hand is almost uniformly the same in all tribes of North America, whether it be alone or joined to a body. In some cases, it is easy to figure out its connection to music and dances or heroic ceremonies, but in others, the use remains a mystery, but is regarded by those who have investigated as a devotional sign of great importance to the Indians. Those who have lived among the tribes to learn of their customs have found many instances of the hand alone as a symbol. Great secrecy is used in the lodges of the medicine men when preparations are being made for the decoration of those who are to take part in the sacred festive dances. The priests supply the marks upon the breast, shoulder, or any part of the body by first smearing their hands with colored clay and pressing them tight against the exposed body of the partic participant. Thus is conveyed the idea that a charm or mystic protection has been placed about the dancer and denotes his proficiency in the hidden arts. The use of the symbolic hand is found not in a single tribe, but in all tribes, Dakotas, Winnebago's, and all other of the red race located in North America, most of whom speak a dialect derived from the language of the uh, Algonquins. There is a description of a village temple which has been left by a man who visited there in 1831, and its location at that time was between Twelve Apostles Island and Lake Superior and the Falls of St. Anthony in the Chippewa country. It was a curious edifice on the edge of a dense forest. It was erected of stout posts set in circular form and was arranged in the manner of a seashell, causing the entrant to involve himself in a labyrinth. There was but one door, and this was entered by the priests only, who were the head uh, or political chief of the tribe. They were usually men of higher intellect than the rest, and in this way, perhaps they could hold an odd influence over their subjects. But the man who related the story had been allowed to go in within uh, to go within this building and found there all the paraphernalia of the magic art of priesthood, and carved upon the naked wood of the walls were many hands and inscriptions. It was explained to him that these were symbols of importance, and they were always to be found in the ancient hieroglyphs of their race. The red hands, which appeared in the far-off lands of Yucatan and the travels of John L. Stevens, most likely connects the North American Indian tribes in some uh, Kabbalistic way to those of Central America. So even here, she's not coming straight out and saying that the hand sign originated with the white prophet, but uh, it obviously seems to be what she's heavily insinuating.